0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Holly Fry and I am Tracy V. Wilson and today we're going to talk a little bit about early fossil study. Yes. When when we started on this podcast, I was very sad that previous hosts had already talked about the bone wars. Mm-hmm. So I am glad that you found a different crazy fossil story for us to talk about. It is. It's one of those things that's often told in um Archaeology studies as sort of a cautionary tale to some degree, but, uh, it's kind of a fascinating little story and the tale that's often told is not really completely accurate. So, uh, what we're talking about today is Johann Beringer. And he was, uh, born Johann Bartholomeus Adam Beringer in 1667. He was the son of a professor, Johann Ludwig Beringer. And Beringer was an active scholar. He eventually became the chair of natural history at the University of Würzburg. And he was also chief physician to the Prince Bishop of Würzburg. And the Prince Bishop's patronage enabled Beringer to study a hobby subject, which was fossils. Uh, but unfortunately, Beringer was, by most accounts, rather arrogant and conceited, which kind of led to the events that ended up unfolding. Right. So there were several theories about the origins of fossils at the time. There was the spermatic principle, and that was that the results of marine animals mating could escape into the sea and sometimes evaporate into the atmosphere, fall down as rain, and grow new fish in the rock crevices where the fertilized eggs fell which is delightful. Yeah, so the theory there is that the fish examples that you would find in fossils were actual fish that had grown in the rock. Because they had fallen from the sky as fertilized eggs. There's the heliomemory theory, which is that rays from the sun could sort of leave a photo imprint onto stones of the things that the light had already touched, which is also delightful. (laughs) It is, and it makes me think of photography a little bit in some ways. It's kind of a a fascinating theory to be rolling around in the early 1700s. Right. The sun was painting pictures on things. Mm -hmm. So the next was the plastic theory, and that's similar to the spermatic theory, but with the fossils spontaneously growing inside of rocks. People had that same theory about other animals, like living animals, too. Yeah, it was... That, that was used to confuse me as a child. Spontaneous generation was popular yes. as, a, as a concept. So gooseneck clams were spawning geese in people's minds at the time. So then there's the signature of God, which was Berenger's favorite, and it is mine too, because I want to call it the Slarder Theory, if you have ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And that's that God carved out the images of animals and plants into the rocks when he was making the earth. And Beringer believed that fossils were, quote, stones of a peculiar sort hidden by the author of nature for his own pleasure, i.e. they were made by a ha- higher power, uh, often just out of a sense of delight, rather than occurring via these other principles that were in discussion at the time. And so to set that up, uh, that kind of sets up our story, which is, as we said, there are two versions. So we're going to start with the first version, which is kind of the legendary version. And according to this version, again, he uh, Berenger was a professor at the time. And on May 31st of 1725, two or sometimes three, depending on the source, students brought him fossil samples. Um, and there were three samples. One had a three-dimensional image of the sun and two had worms or worm-like markings on them. But they were raised up. They weren't embedded inside the rock. They were on top of it, like extruded. So he was immediately excited and puzzled by these stones. Um, and between the first delivery at the end of May and November of 1725, more sample fossils followed. Yes, the students kept bringing him samples. And these contained all kinds of different images, including heavenly objects like comets with tails and moons. And then even things like Hebraic letters. Uh, there were plants, there were insects, there were small animals. Things that we would probably recognize pretty quickly couldn't happen because a lot of them involved soft tissue that would normally be broken down in a fossil situation. But uh, Beringer was just super excited by all of these discoveries. Right. And we, as we've talked about before, he was pretty arrogant and had a high opinion of his own knowledge. So uh, this is sort of a pride goeth before the fall kind of situation. Yes. So he allegedly received somewhere around 2,000 of these stones, which he thought were... Legitimate things. Yeah, so he, uh, after studying them over the course of several months, as they were coming in, he said about writing what he believed would be a masterpiece in lithography studies, which lithography is what fossils were called at the time, not the modern meaning. Uh, and his 1726 book, the Würzburg Lithography, uh, was this masterpiece, which he thought was going to be kind of his own scientific opus. And the book features illustrations of the stones, and it discusses their possible origins, including the theories that we mentioned at beginning of the podcast. While he was working on the book, rumors started to circulate that the stones that he had were fake, uh, created by contemporary hoaxsters with the goal of seriously embarrassing him because he was pompous and pretentious. And in his book, because these rumors did start to circulate before it was complete, he actually includes an entire chapter about the hoax rumors. Uh, And I'm going to read a passage from it. It's a little bit lengthy, but stick with us. Uh, He says, quote, Then, when I had all but completed my work, I caught the rumor circulating throughout the city, especially among prominent and learned men, that every one of these stones, which, on the advice of wise men, I proposed to expound in a published treatise, were, quote, recently sculpted by hand, made to look as though at different periods they had been resurrected from a very old burial, and sold to me as one indifferent to fraud and caught up in the blind greed of curiosity. Further, that I, once deceived in my wretched turn, was deluding the world and trying to sell new hoaxes as genuine antiques to the silent laughter of prudent souls. I was shocked beyond words to learn that the authors of this atrocious calumny were two men, perhaps best described as a pair of antagonists, whose names I have reason to protect at present, men with whom I was closely associated in numerous functions, former colleagues in the academic society." He went on in this whole chapter about the hoax rumors to say, Our idiomorphic stones are not the hand-wrought products of recent artistry, as some persons have shamelessly pretended and attempted to peddle to the public by widespread rumor and gossip. So the two men he keeps referring to, uh, but not naming, are a geographer, J. Ignaz Roderick, who was a professor of geography, algebra, and analysis at the University of Würzburg, and a historian, George von Eckhart, who was privy counselor and librarian to the court and the university. Uh, but the hoax rumors, of course, were indeed true. So he became so embarrassed, according to the legend, when he found a stone that had his name carved on it, just as the book was rolling off the presses and into the hands of the public. And he was allegedly so chagrined at this, and having, having been pranked by students, that he tried to buy up every copy of the book in existence and bankrupted himself and died soon after the ordeal in misery and destitution. So that's the sort of legendary version of the story. Yes, that's the extremely cautionary tale of a fossil hoax. And the real story does have some seeds of truth in that version. But there are some wide swings into the realm of falsehood as well. Uh, The dates for the stones being presented to Beringer and the publication of his book are indeed correct. But the machinations of the hoax and the manner in which it was revealed and what happened post-discovery are quite different. And the real story was actually revealed in court documents and transcripts that were found in the Würzburg State Archives. Dr. Heinrich Kirchner is recognized as the person who discovered these items in 1935, Although Melvin E. Yon and Daniel J. Wolf, who produced the annotated and translated work of Beringer's book, are the people that are cited with doing so more often, Yon and Wolf themselves cite Kirschner's work. And the story that's told in the transcripts is really one of academic envy. It's kind of just a, a drama that's playing out among colleagues that are just kind of have vendettas against one another and have a jealousy at the heart of their relationship. Uh, Beringer did take students with him to dig for fossils, and there were three in particular that were involved in this particular episode. One was 17 year-old Christian Zanger and two brothers, Nicholas, who was 18, and Valentine, who was 14, Hain. It turns out that the prank was not something that they thought up themselves. It was a plan on the parts of J. Ignatz Roderick and George von Eckhart to use Berenger's own obstinance against him. Roderick and Eckhart had apparently hired Zanga to polish stones for them that Roderick had carved and sort of aged them a little bit. And then Zanga would plant them in dig sites. But some were also handed off to a stonecutter's assistant to sell uh, to Berenger as though he had accidentally found them at sites or as though he had come into possession of them. Kind of to support the idea that it was natural by having these things come from multiple sources instead of one stream of supply, which might look suspicious. Right. And part of the reason that he was convinced that these fossil samples were the work of God was the inclusion on some of the stones uh, of language that put them outside the natural imprint theory. Right. While animals and plants happen in nature, letters don't. So that's part of why Beringer, who was already a little predisposed to think that these were uh, divine creations, that just supported that theory as far as he was concerned, rather than dismissing the validity of the fossils as some people might have approached them. Right. So because the samples substantiated his theories of foss- of where fossils came from, his cognitive bias kind of led him down the path of words mean they're real instead of words mean they're fake. Yeah. So he fell right into the trap set by his fellow academics. And as Beringer's sample set grew and he started working on his book in earnest, Roderick and Eckhart apparently began circulating the hoax rumor because they were afraid that if Beringer published the work without the hoax being revealed, they could somehow be connected to the findings and would be ruined along with their colleague. Like they were starting to think that if he went ahead and published it, The entire university would kind of be embarrassed, and they would be embarrassed. And whether or not they were implicated as hoaxers, it could be just a really bad scene. So they didn't want him to publish the book. No, it was partially covering their own behinds at this point. There's some dispute as to how he was finally convinced that this was a hoax. It is possible that he found a rock with his name on it, but no such rock has ever been recovered. And some accounts suggest that Roderick and Eckhart had finally thought that things had gone too far and that they outright told Beringer that the stones were fakes, but he wouldn't believe their confession because he was so convinced at that point. There's also a theory that the church bishop was involved in convincing him of the truth. This is a part of the story that hasn't ever really been clear, and it's not referenced in the court proceedings that we have to document it. Uh, and after the fraud was exposed, though... However, he was convinced Behringer took action. And on April 13th of 1726, there was a hearing at the Würzburg Cathedral chapter accusing Roderick and Eckhart of trying to dupe Behringer. So unlike the legend story where he just is ashamed and tries to hide the whole thing, he actually is pretty open about trying to pursue his hoaxsters and bring them to justice. Municipal trials followed all of this on April the 15th and June 11th of 1726. Uh, the young diggers that were involved were questioned about their involvement, and if you read the Jan and Wolf translation and annotation of Berenger's book, the hearings are included in the appendices, and all of the specific questions that they asked the kids are in there, which we won't go through because it really is kind of a long, arduous, have you ever carved a thing? Do you know how to carve? I mean, they're really specific questions and they go on for quite a while. Uh, but the trial papers begin and end rather abruptly. We've talked about other trials on the podcast and there's often like we get the opening arguments and the discussion and the lead in. This kind of just starts with questions to the kids and ends after the June 11th trial which was also questions. It doesn't really get to what happened, like, in deliberation and discussion. Uh, it just kind of includes the questions and the answers. Roderick tried to shift the blame to the boys Berenger had hired to help him with his digs. And the Haynes really appeared to be innocent in the whole thing. There was apparently a bribe that was offered to Zanger also to blame the Han- the Hane brothers, but Zanger refused to take it. Yeah, so it pretty quickly became apparent that Roderick and Eckhart were, in fact, guilty, and they were disgraced when that became obvious. So the very thing they had hoped to avoid by... Uh, pointing out the hoax and starting the hoax rumors came to fruition in their uh, trial. So Zanga was implicated, but it doesn't appear that any real punishment came to him because he did know that they were faking these stones. Uh, but he did ask the, the commission for assistance in collecting eight days worth of wages that Roderick owed him for polishing stones, which I just thought was sort of funny. But in the midst of all of this, he's like, yeah, they were faking it, and he still owes me money for this fraud. <laughs> I sort of loved it. So what was the motivation for all of this? It's that the antagonists wanted to ruin Beringer because, quote, he was so arrogant and despised them all. Yeah, it was just as simple as that. Uh, I have seen some kind of less um, dependable sources that suggested that there may or may not have been a love affair involved between um, one of the other academics and someone that was connected to Beringer, but I never found any verification of that. It really does, in most uh, articles and discussions of it, kind of come down to, they just thought he was a, an arrogant jerk. Right. And they just wanted to put him in his place. <laughs> Let's show that jerk face with our fake fossils. Yeah. And while tales of Beringer's shame and demise completely color the apocryphal story, as we said, it's kind of a cautionary tale of, like, you know, don't fall for things that you just want to believe, because you'll end up poor and embarrassed and, and die an early death because yeah. of your shame he actually emerged from the hoax ordeal pretty well in his time and he went on to write two more books that were not about fossils uh, so he really came out pretty well in the whole deal so Eckhart on the other hand died four years after the trial and he had actually been working on a history of the Duchy of Würzburg for many years but after this all happened he was denied access to the library archives uh, and he never got to finish that work Roderick left Wurzburg in shame. Beringer died in 1740, which was 14 years after the hoax trial. And even though the remainder of his life seems to have gone pretty well, he has not been treated terribly well by history. He's become kind of a symbol of gullibility and um, the foolishness of cognitive bias. In 1767, which was 27 years after his death and 41 years after the original publication and trial, Beringer's Würzburg lithography was republished. And 40, 434 of Beringer's stones, which came to be known as Lügensteine, which literally means lie stones or lying stones, actually survive. There were 494 depicted in the book. Uh, and many of the collection that remains are at the University Museum at Oxford. Berenger claimed that he had received more than 2,000, but it's possible that that's a bit of an inflated number. So uh, you can go visit some of these stones. Some of them are apparently in the hands of uh, private collectors as well, uh, because they are still significant and they're in antiquity. And continue to be a cautionary tale, even though yes. he did not die in shame immediately after. No, and the- he, he went after the people that tried to make a fool of him, which... I kind of love about this yeah. story. Don't be a jerk or fall prey to your own hubris <laughs> is the moral of this story. Yeah. So that is the story of Johann Berenger's Lying Stones, which I sort of just love. It's uh, one of the stories that we wish there were even more records. There are no, like, portraits of him, for example. But I still just love that it's studied and examined. And uh as we've said, it's become almost like a... uh A fairy tale told to archaeology students on how not to be duped. (laughs) I believe you have some listener mail. I do indeed. Uh, This actually came to us on Facebook and it was in relation to a listener mail I had read about Caesar's horse possibly having toes instead of hooves. Uh, and this is from our listener Adam, and he says, hi there, long time listener, first time writer, yada yada, but hi. And he said, my listener mail about Caesar's horse comes from Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars. Here is the quote in full. Quote, he rode a remarkable horse too, with feet that were almost human, for its hooves were cloven in such a way as to look like toes. The horse was foaled on his own place, and since the soothsayers had declared that it foretold the rule of the world for its master, he reared it with the greatest care and was the first to mount it, for it would endure no other rider. Afterwards, too, he dedicated a statue of it before the Temple of Venus Genetrix, which I hope I pronounced correctly. Uh, this was published, Adam goes on to say, in about 121 A.D., so far before the 14th century date your listener was able to trace it back to. The problem with using Suetonius as a historical source is that he does not judge the validity of many of the statements that he includes in his histories, although he sometimes does put in his own two cents. Instead, he reports what others have said. Often, this means that he is reporting a source that we have either lost the original source, or we have no idea where he got it from. In the Twelve Caesars, you get many folk tales, competing versions of events, and mystical explanations. What you get is a popular history and a great story. For those of us who studied history, we must remember that this was before any true historical theory had been established, so there's no filter. What it does show us is how people who lived at the time understood their own history, and it can also be used to confirm or support other versions that can be found elsewhere. Thanks so much. Adam, that's so cool. We also had a listener, Jim, on Twitter that mentioned it. Yes. Uh, he pretty much pointed us to the source, and yes. then I went looking on the Internet and found that you can, because it's so old, get that entire book On the internet to read the whole thing if you want to. Yeah, it was part of Project Gutenberg. uh, And I think in my reply to Adam on our page, if anybody happens to see it, is the link to the the Project Gutenberg. We'll link it up in our our, our show notes, And we'll put it in the show notes, too. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a cool thing. There is there are many sources of Caesar's yes. horse having the possible vestigial right. toes that we've talked about before. Yeah, and and the thought at first that that was what people were talking about, and then uh, there was some discussion about whether the hooves had actually been cloven by a person to make them look like toes, so that it was like a human modification of horse hooves, which sounds terrible and painful to me. It does. Rather than a sort of a naturally occurring Yes, variant. an atavism in the horse's feet. Yes, but as we know, uh, horses did have vestigial toes, and sometimes they, they still have the bones that's, that are part of that mechanism that uh, are just above the hoof, apparently. Yes. It's fascinating stuff, the way animals evolve. Uh, so, yeah, we love that letter. It was super cool. Adam is uh, very knowledgeable about the Twelve Caesars and is really fun to talk to you about it. I love all the analysis of where the, the Twelve Caesars fits in to sort of yeah. how we understand history. yeah. Awesome. Love it. So if you would like to write us with your insights and knowledge of history, you can do so at history Podcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook like Adam did, which is facebook.com slash history class stuff or on Twitter like Jim did at Mist in History. We're also on Tumblr at Myst in History dot dot com and we're on Pinterest. And if you would like to learn more about the subject we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words lying stones and you will turn up a new article uh, called 10 Famous Fake Antiques and the Suckers Who Bought Them. Although not all those people are suckers. A lot of them fooled experts. So it's an interesting read on ways that other people have been hoaxed by uh, fake items. And if you would like to learn about almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website as well. And that website is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible.